0: So that'd be Commander Ruth. He was an A-4 pilot.
1: Oh, wow. I haven't heard about A-4s in forever. Yeah, back in the day, man. Those things were so he, little tiny go-getters.
0: Yeah, he was flying Sinatra's plane. So he was flying triple zeros. That was a Commander Naval Aviation training Sinatra. Sinatra was home ported or home based out of uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. So the one star there. His own plane, Commander Ruth uh, was out there doing, I want to say, reservist training. I've got his name tag somewhere. But uh, smoke and fume inhalation is what caused him to eject. The plane flew four miles after he ejected and crashed into the Oso Bay.
1: Where's the Oso Bay?
0: It's right out the gate. Oh, <laughs> and it's only like four feet deep Yeah <laughs> it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy.
1: So what was that rescue like then? I mean you you get the call, obviously you guys jump into the bird, you take off.
0: I tell you, man, everything is. It's like slow motion. It's like, what's my next thing I'm supposed to be doing? It's A, B, C, D, E. You're just going through a mental checklist. And if you don't get the response you need, obviously, you'll pause. But uh, there's not a lot of time for you to think outside of that. I mean, that's just what's been ingrained in you. Is This is what we do. It's very reactive uh, in a good way. I mean, in a trained reactive way. So, so you you get you get kicked out into the water. The guy's in a raft. Uh, he's doing pretty well. He's not in any kind of. He's not. He's got some bruised uh, shins because when you eject, you tend to bruise your shins or even break a leg. Uh, pretty cool cat. I'm an E three at the time, so plucking a commander out of the water is pretty huge.
1: <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Um, took his name tag off his flight suit. <laughs> Keep that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a thing for rescue guys when they pull pilots out?
0: It kind of is a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing today, but I know back in the day, it was absolutely a thing. When you went in, if now keep in mind, if there was a lot going on, you're not going to rip the guy's name tag off right then. But if everything's looking copacetic, name tag off, buddy, that's mine. It goes right in your SAR one pocket. That's that flotation device I was telling you about. Yeah, you got a little pocket in there. You stuff it right in that float that uh, pocket.
1: All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical. If you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small. We're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. Today, I get the opportunity to talk to my teammate, Rob Fry. Rob is a retired Navy commander who started out his career as an enlisted sailor. Rob's early career was as a Navy rescue swimmer. He became a limited duty officer in 2001. He was also medically retired after 32 years due to TBI, which we talk a lot about. Also, before we get started, I got to let you guys know we changed some things up with the studio here and the audio is not as great as it should be. Please bear with it. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire.
0: Good to see you.
1: So, everyone, I'm back and I'm here with my teammate and my good buddy and one of the few officers I highly respect. Actually, that's probably not true. There's probably several that I respect, but I'm here with Rob Fry. Rob, say hello. Hello, hello. So I met Rob at the... This is like a Team Navy thing. I met Rob at uh, the Team Navy tryouts in... What was it?
0: 2018? Was it or was it beginning of 2019? Was it 2018?
1: 2018. Um, 2018. Yeah. I got a memory problem, brother, so I'm going to go with you. It's all good. Um, Rob was... On the team and then we both competed at uh colorado springs so this should be a very very interesting episode two guys with tbi are going to have a very long conversation so if we repeat stuff <laughs> forgive us now so rob you told me on a text message i didn't realize it you did 32 years in the navy 31
0: years seven months and six
1: days Okay, 32. We'll, we'll go with 32. It sounds better.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I rounded up. I uh, had every intention of doing 38, but the, the TBI thing kind of got in the way and the Navy sent me home early, so. Do
1: you think you would have uh, put a star on?
0: I'd like to think so. I'm sure I'd have made captain. Uh, I mean, that was that was kind of a given for me in my, my career field, and just how well I broke out, so. Absolutely. Uh, this definitely got in the way of my plans.
1: Definitely. So let's start at the very beginning. Rob, I know you're in Florida right now, but where did you grow up at?
0: I actually grew up in Florida and Georgia, and a little bit in South Carolina, and a little bit in North Carolina, and a little bit in Tennessee. You can tell I moved around a little bit. My dad was a uh, he was ex-military, and he, he went wherever the money was at in the 60s and 70s. So um, my home is Florida. I was born in Florida, in Bartow. And I spent most of my formidable years, I think, in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. where That's where I met Carrie, my wife, as a matter of fact. And uh, so I call Florida home.
1: Okay. So you spent your entire childhood in Florida. How did you, did you know that you were going to be a a military guy?
0: Well, that's a great question, man. Really. Uh, So I had, you know, growing up in Florida, I grew up in central Florida where we were building a lot of uh, bridges, turns out, and uh, doing a lot of pylon work and the guys got paid i was working on a shrimp boat i was getting paid pretty good money but the guys that were diving and working on the being underwater welders and stuff for these pylons they were making huge money so i was like hey that's what i want to do and somehow i don't i don't remember the exact moment that i connected that with the military specifically with the navy but uh Somehow there was a connection made with the Navy and underwater demolition team, UDT, back in the day. They don't call UDT anymore, but but uh, that's kind of what I want to do. I wanted to be an underwater welder. I wanted to do a couple of years in the Navy, serve my country, and then get out and have this mad skills to do bridge work, man.
1: So you knew right off the bat that uh... – Doing something kind of high profile or not high profile, but high intensity was really what you wanted to do with the Navy then.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: So, growing up in high school, I take it you were kind of athletic and outgoing then.
0: Uh, I would say I'm, I'm a type A outgoing person, uh, very athletic, uh, like all sports. Uh, football being one of my favorites because you got to hit people.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's uh, a, uh, not-
0: I also played tennis, so it's kind of weird. I played tennis as well. So
1: the hitting uh, part Very of individualized. The, the hitting part doesn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> the tennis does actually, the tennis really does kind of surprise me that that was something that you were into. So
0: did were you two girls on the tennis team, Tommy?
1: True. I totally forgot about that part.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to look at it from all aspects, brother.
1: That is, that is legitimately true. So let me ask you this. Um, how was your recruiting process? How old were you when you decided to go in?
0: So my recruiting process was a little weird. I was actually living in Georgia and let me back up just for a minute. So I dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Um I was a very smart student all all A's, um, but I really wasn't with the system. I just didn't like the system at large and uh I felt I was too smart to be in school, which is probably not unheard of in the eighties but uh so I was I moved to Georgia and started roofing houses in Atlanta, Georgia and I made pretty decent money, but I worked my butt off, man. And, uh, I realized that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, what I'd set out to do when I was just a couple of years younger, you know, which was to be an underwater welder. And, uh, so I reached out to the Navy recruiter. I didn't reach out to any other service, just the Navy. Um, they had the best program going and, you know, the Navy set the dive tables to begin with. So, um, uh, So I reached out to the Navy recruiter. He was kind of a knucklehead, but he got me the ASFAB test. I did that, and it was super easy. I was just shocked at how easy the ASFAB test was. And then lo and behold, I moved to Patuxent River, Maryland to join. Now, there's a funny story here, Tommy. I went to Maryland. I had family that lived there. And uh, I went to Mar- I was living on my own in Georgia. I was uh, 16 and a half when I went up to Maryland. I'd already taken the ASFEB though. And like I said, I was a dropout from 10th grade. Uh, went up to Maryland and lived with my dad and met the recruiter up there, Chris Churcher. I'll never forget his name. And uh, I had to get a waiver to come in at 17. And we signed up, and I was going to be. PT. that's what i was going to do that's it was that easy and, you know they wanted me for nuke and all this other stuff but uh all i wanted to do was underwater weld man that was my my path
1: so answer you, that,
0: or did i mess it all up
1: no 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 um so when you decided to join did you so you only were looking at underwater diving so uh UDT. What year was that?
0: Uh, nineteen
1: eighty-seven. Okay. Um. So you go do the, you do that all that. Did you have to go through like a dive fair screening or anything like that before you joined?
0: Yeah, I did all the what we call seal training now, obviously, but uh, but I did like buds training and not buds. Type um, training. I I did do the, um, what do you call it the
1: P.T. warfare.
0: Yeah, now it's called N.S.W. It's through the challenge program. It's a little bit different now than it was in the '80s. SEALs weren't that big of a deal, and I'm not trying to downplay the SEALs. I'm just saying they they hadn't really done so much. I mean, if we think back to John Kerry, we can see that they didn't do so much. But uh, hey, that's just me taking a dig. <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, I had to do all the P.T. requirements through boot camp. I went and PT'd with the SEALs um, and UDT guys. um, And I destroyed the PT. I was 156 pounds of pure muscle. I didn't have any body fat. And uh, I was actually undersized for what they wanted. You know, they wanted a 185 pound guy uh, was their optimal target. But uh, so how old were you at the time? 17.
1: Okay so you were still just a little young one then
0: I was man I was barely shaving brother
1: so let me ask you this how was it showing up at boot camp when you at 17 years old
0: there's a disadvantage there I mean there's guys I had a 39 year old in my boot camp a 39 year old yeoman that's what he was striking to be as a yeoman and uh he had a whole bunch of stuff going on with him. He was a, he was a Mormon and there was all kinds of religious relief given to the guy. Uh, but he was kind of the guy that I'd go to and ask a question to because he was the most like a father figure. Uh, uh, the other guys were still trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of them were there because it was uh, join the Navy or go to jail. That's the programs we had back in the eighties, by the way. We don't want to go to jail serve your country. And we should do more of that today, by the way. Oh, yeah. But, uh, um, so I think I did, a. I, I became a squad leader, uh, within a couple of days. Um, I was very acute with, uh, the training regiment they had and, and understood what needed to be done. And I, I was good at dealing with people. Like I said, uh, you know, I kind of left out something earlier, you know, I, from 13 to 15, Um, I pretty much lived on the streets. My mom and dad had separated, and I just lived on the streets. I lived in my car, ate out of a dumpster, all kinds of crazy shit. uh, So I had become accustomed to dealing with people at an early age. So boot camp wasn't that big of a challenge. Uh, In fact, I gained weight there. I came out of boot camp weighing 176 pounds. I gained 20 pounds in boot camp.
1: Nobody does that. I did,
0: dude.
1: That's not a common thing. Uh, well, I
0: like wasn't PT or nearly as much as I PT before I went
1: in. I was gonna say, like I said, like you said, you were doing some pretty hard labor uh, as a kid. So, did how did your? I know you said that your parents were separated when you were at a young age. How much did the military influence um, from your dad or from your parents have on you?
0: Um, I- my dad was a Vietnam veteran He did uh, multiple tours. He was a aerial door gunner on a Huey. And then he got a battlefield commission from General Westmoreland uh, and actually flew the Huey. That was kind of cool, but he got shot down a lot, like 16 times. Jeez. Uh, so he suffered from just crazy PTSD, which, you know, I didn't know what that was back then. I don't think anybody knew what it was, truthfully, because no one gave him a diagnosis of PTSD. That was just one of the things, you know, it's and I know you get it with your background that you're kind of like, hey, just dust it off, man. You're good to go. You know, everybody's doing it. Um, But later on, especially by the time I joined, I realized, like, there's something not quite right with my dad. He's got some some pretty angry moments in his life where he wants to hurt people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, back then, it, it was a whole different world, too, um, in terms of people, even now, people don't want to talk about their experiences. And, and still think that going to get help isn't, isn't the right thing for a warrior or for a man to do. When, honestly, from the experiences that you and I have both had together on the team to our time in service, we know that it's probably the best thing to do is to get help.
0: Yeah, it takes takes courage, though.
1: So what was your dad's thoughts about you going to boot camp and joining the Navy? I mean, mind you, and I'm not going to take anything away from the time frame that you started, but it was towards the end of the Cold War.
0: Well, so for me, it was it was very it was maritime. It was a maritime service. Um, He understood what I was trying to do. He really respected that. He was not a big fan of me quitting school to begin with. That wasn't something he was a fan of. Uh, he asked me, he's like, "Hey, just don't join the army." I was like, "I only have my eye on the Navy. That's what offers me the program that that I want." And he was very supportive. He signed me. Uh, he signed my waiver to join. So he was very support, highly supportive uh, of joining the Navy, and understood what I was hoping to get out of it. And I think back now you know as a 52 year old man that he obviously knew what I would learn about myself and some discipline in the military because he had served
1: so so with him um having that army background what was that day that you got on the where did you go to boot camp first
0: great lakes
1: okay So you went to Great Mistakes like everyone does now. Because back when you came in, it was what? Orlando, Great Great Lakes, and San Diego.
0: Yeah. And you know, so that's a funny story, Tommy. The reason I went to Maryland and joined is because the recruiter in Georgia told me if I go up north and join, I have a better chance of getting Orlando, which is what I wanted. So I went up north, live with my dad. And I still got Great Lakes, man. I was so pissed.
1: What time of the year was that that you went?
0: February 22nd. It was so cold. It was negative it was 70 with the windshield. It was just <laughs> ridiculous, man. I was like, how is this possible?
1: You, you know, it always surprised me that we had, a, well, not only that we had our boot camp in the middle of the country by lakes, but that. Yeah. It got so cold. We had, did you guys have cold factor days back then? I, I, that's what they were calling them when we went in. Like you put on like a cold factor five day was you basically dress up like the kid from, uh, not home alone, but, uh, Christmas story head to toe. And everything. So they that called
0: it, yeah. They called that, uh, when they would come on and every morning, they'd give you the revelry, revely and they would announce the uniform of the day, uh, there were several days in a row that it was wear locker towel optional.
1: Towel optional.
0: The towel being around your neck. I mean, you had your your beanie on, you know, your little whatever they call that,
1: small cap. Yeah,
0: yeah. But it was wear wear locker towel optional. And I'll yeah. never forget that. I was like, what does that mean, man? <laughs> just put on everything you can. Yeah. You know, we had long sleeve heavy duty shirts back then. So that's what we wore.
1: Yeah. I came in.
0: our coat, We had our pea coat on.
1: Yeah. I, re- I remember our one cold factor five day. We were not marched to the chow hall. We were lined up in the ladder well and two by two, we were told to run across the street to the chow hall because <laughs> it was like you, it was like a minus 70 degree day. And the wind chill was supposedly so bad. If it touched any exposed skin within two minutes, you're going to have frostbite or some yeah. bullshit like that. It was so crazy. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So what was the goodbye like between you and your father as you got on the plane or bus?
0: Uh, it seemed fairly normal. I mean, my father wasn't like overly affectionate. I'm sure that had to do with his, his time in the service. Cause later on in life, he was more affectionate, uh, with my kids, but, uh, it was more like, Hey, go and do good things, son.
1: Uh, so I got to ask, I got to ask. So whenever we talk about anyone's boot camp, uh, pretty much all services share one common thing, whether it's the Marine Corps, Air Force, Navy, you go into a little room with this little mask that they give you much different from the mask that we're required to wear now and say, go ahead and take that off after about five minutes of this stuff being exposed to the air. How was your time in the chamber? It was
0: awesome. (laughs) Absolutely awesome. You think you can John Wayne it. You really do. You're like, Hey, I got this. I'm not going to be like all those other cats that just came out with snot hanging out of their nose. I'm going to be good to go, but you're not. Uh, It's, I mean, it's there for a reason. So you can experience what it's like. Uh, I really think we should do it more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you on that. So, you back then, um, like you said, it was a maritime service. Did they do all the firefighter firefighting training?
0: Um, I don't remember doing any firefighting. It wasn't, uh, that wasn't, we didn't have ship companies or anything like that. We did, uh, we all shot the Colt 45, but I think we shot 38 rounds through it. Something like that. I, I don't remember.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, not, not, um, not gunfire training. I mean, actually fighting fires on board the ship.
0: No, we didn't okay. do any of that.
1: Yeah, by the time a few years later when I got there, they had a whole firefighting simulator that you had to go through to knock down fires because, you know, obviously 90% of the the expectation was 90% of us would have ended up on a ship. I think you probably have more sea time in your first year in the service than I probably did in my entire Time and service.
0: <laughs> I've got a couple of seven years underway, buddy. <laughs> Damn.
1: <laughs> so, um, <laughs> seven years. So you graduate boot camp. I'm. I'm going to make the guess that your family did come up to see your graduation, or did you just tell people to stay home? No
0: one came up. I was all alone. Um, it was. It was a pretty awkward time. I was all alone. My, my family wasn't rich, uh, not that you have to be rich, but in today's world, everyone has money to do just whatever they wanna do. But uh, my dad was a working class guy. Uh, him and my mom had actually got back together, weird story there. And uh, so they didn't come up, but I was okay with it. I was, I was so comfortable in myself that I was like, it's okay. I mean, I would have liked for them to be there, no doubt. Uh, I'd have really liked for my current my uh, wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, to be up there, but she was living in Florida, and Chicago's a long transit. And I don't think her dad was too keen on the idea.
1: <laughs> no, you don't think so. No. So, so you've known Carrie basically your entire Navy career.
0: I met her when I was eleven.
1: Oh, I didn't know your guys had like a true little, little kid romance love story going on.
0: Yeah, we started dating in seventh grade. Uh, we were most likely to be married. Uh, yeah, we've been together for September's 40 years.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah, I it's a minute. She is a tolerant woman. Let's put it that way.
0: She is a she's a stick of dynamite is what she is, dude.
1: Oh, yeah. You said,
0: but I got a haircut today because she said, you're getting a haircut. I was like, I don't want a
1: haircut. (laughs) Well, tell her she, I got to get her on to talk about being a spouse, especially with everything that uh, goes along with being a spouse of someone who's in the program. So before we go that way, let's talk about what, where did you go after boot camp?
0: Hey, can we pause for a brief second?
1: Yeah, please. All right, we're back again, and so where we were at was uh, where it happened to you after boot camp. So where'd you go next?
0: So uh, we're gonna have to back up just a little bit because while I was in boot camp, I went to I was under contract to. UDT underwater welder. Um, and that wasn't exactly the program. The program was UDT, uh, but out of that, you could become an underwater welder. So I had to go in with a structural A school. So I went as an aviation uh, structural. So it's what is AMS? That? AMS, aviation maintenance structural. There's also like hydraulics and ejections, but uh, I went as an AMS for structural, and that was a source rating that you needed to be for for UDT. You had to have that source rating. But while I was in A school, about the fifth weekend, and I can't remember the, I think the CNO was Kelso at the time, and uh, the Navy was very overmanned. I mean, we were fat. Really were. And, you know, it's maritime. So there's not a lot going on. And they said, Hey, your your A school is 187% man. So you're going to choose a new job, or we're going to give you a nice thank you for coming out and playing Navy honorable discharge. Oh, so that was week five, which, if you remember what week five was, that's service week. You've already done all the big hurdles, and now you're in service week. So I went in, and I think it's funny, and this isn't meant in any other way than comic relief. Uh, turns out that most of the personnel in back then were Filipino. Uh, it was just, it was funny to me. They're all Filipino, and they were like, hey, what do you, you, know, what do you want to do? It's <laughs> like, I don't know, dude, I want to be a welder. <laughs> um, so they tried to recruit me for a uh, nuke torpedoesman's mate nuked this, nuked that. And uh, so I made a phone call out to my brother-in-law who was in the Navy. So what do you think? He goes, I think you should be an avionics guy, dude. You're really smart. Go avionics. So I did. I chose avionics. I went to AT. So out of, out of boot camp, I went to ATA school. And I was my barracks, 434 in, in, in Millington was right next to the AW barracks, which is the aviation warfare specialist. Uh, that do search and rescue. uh, And they did submarine, anti-submarine warfare. Uh, So I got to, while I was in A school, I experienced those guys, but this is definitely looking back on time. Uh, So I got done with A school And I graduated uh, pretty well. I was a uh, section leader all that stuff. I mean, I've always been able to rise to a position of leadership, which was probably more a function of the chief petty officers in the Navy than it was mine, you know, giving you opportunities to fall on your sword or not. Um, But uh, yes, so when I graduated, I had no idea what I was doing after A school. Um, so we're standing there at graduation, like rattling everybody's name off. And then they would, after they said your name, they would say you are you're going to. There was no choice in the matter. And for me, it was air crew candidate school, Naval air crew candidate school. I was like, what the heck is that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that must have been very, very interesting to say the least.
0: Well, I had been training with the UDT guys, but found out that my source rating of AT was not a source rating. I needed to be an AQ. So I tried to become an AQ, and they're like, yeah, you can't. you got to wait to get redesignated. So um, that didn't work out. So like I said, I'm positive that my chief... Uh, put me in for something that he thought would be equally challenging for me but and involved the water because later on after I went to air crew school I had no idea what I was getting into they called us out of graduation they named off three names at the end of air crew graduation and I was one of those three names and says so you have 15 minutes to report to rescue swimmer school. I was like what the heck is that?
1: So they really set you up for success (laughs) Yeah,
0: in spite of my own intentions. uh, And that would be throughout my career, Tommy, in spite of my own intentions, the Navy has, has definitely the people in the Navy look out for people in the Navy. That's just what happens.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about air crew school. Cause I know, um, even myself, I have a friend who was looking at going, um, naval air crew and i thought it was i've seen some pretty out of shape people with their ac wings so i thought it was more of a check in the box air crew school is not a check in the box physically
0: no you you got to swim a mile with your gear on so um to get out of air crew school you're not going to be out of shape i mean not when i went through and i went through in 1988 um, you were definitely in shape when you came out of Air School. I mean, I was—I think I had leaned back down to about 160 uh, by the time I got to SAR School. I mean, I had dropped all that um, boot camp weight.
1: Really? So, what was a uh, what was it like being in? A, were you still 17 at that time? I was 18. Well, I guess you would still probably be the baby of the, of the group. To say I the was. Way. I
0: was a youngster. There, there wasn't anybody in my boot camp or in my air crew school that was uh, as a waiver.
1: So what was your take on um, showing up there and having no idea what air crew school was?
0: I think it probably was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Because I didn't have any expectations, I couldn't be let down.
1: Makes sense. So what was a typical day like in Eric School for you, or for the class?
0: Um, we'd do a little bit of instruction, go for a run, head over to the pool and do some swimming, light swimming, nothing like rescue swimmer school. Uh, and then do a little bit more, we'd do some PT, some calisthenics, and you know, they were big on push-ups and sit-ups, uh, and then a little more academics, It was pretty mixed. It was pretty mixed during the day. And it was, nothing was so long that you got, you know, totally exhausted. But you definitely, over the time of the day, it became compounded and you were pretty tired.
1: So were you, um, that's what I'm looking for here. Were you expecting to be in the water as much as you were? Like, did you have a swimming background? Uh,
0: I had a surfing background. I was a surfer no swimming never swam in school never did any of that
1: so what was that experience like for you getting uh, you know like you said surfing and swimming are two different things and I know the navy has a special way of swimming
0: um I I took to it like a fish out of water man I took (laughs) to it Uh, that's my call sign is fish I really took to swimming it was something I was naturally good at and I truly enjoyed. So, to me, nothing they could do was going to deter me from from being excited about it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I was so, very excited about all.
1: So, somewhere between showing up and graduating, I know they start to do stuff like the Hilo Dunker and uh, what is it? Escape or not escape? But uh, Deer. Uh, probably what you just said. Where you have to get out of the, uh, where you have to get out of the, um, out of Search the.
0: Evade, resist, escape.
1: No, no, I'm thinking where you have to get out of the uh, helicopter. Underwater. That's
0: 9D5. That's the 9D5. That's the Hilo Dunker, buddy.
1: Yeah. How was that
0: experience? We you? also had to do parachute disentanglement as well.
1: Oh. That's not fun.
0: And we took, we took boxing back then, so we had a whole course on boxing you learned how to box and use a speed bag and whatever that little thing that's move back and forth to the left it no matter how you hit it it wants to hit you back and we did that pugil sticks it was a different navy back then
1: damn i didn't realize we were that um that combative back then
0: yeah i didn't so- either So I I didn't join the Navy to go to war, dude.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So how was that for you, though, um, in the helo dunker when they strapped you in, push the thing over and you have to get out of the helicopter with no air, with air?
0: It it just seemed natural to me, man. I just sat there, waited for all the violent motion to stop. And I would count to 15 after everything stopped. I counted to 15. That way everybody else could exit. And then I would do the procedures, you know, hand over hand to the exit. Um, I, was, I was super calm. Um, and I think I stayed that way throughout my career when I would do the refresher training. Um, I understood what it was there for, just to make you be calm when you don't want to be
1: calm. Makes total sense. So you graduate from Naval Air Crew School. You get your gold wings, um, which is a pretty huge accomplishment. In itself.
0: Oh, you don't get your gold wings when I graduate. Oh no, you don't? No. So what do you have, what do you then, have you to do? To go, yeah, you had to go to your next command, your command, and go all the way through the flight training phase and become a crew chief to get your wings. So it took me two years to get my wings, oh, which wow. is ironic. You know, not really ironic, but we had other guys that would show up at my command. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but they would show up at my command and they would already have their wings because the Navy had transitioned to upon completion of air crew school, you got your wings, but that wasn't the case with me. And there was no grandfathering.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So you graduate air crew school. Do you go to your first command or do they send you straight to rescue swimmer school?
0: Uh, I had to, I had to double time to rescue swimmer school. I had 15 minutes to run from air crew school to star school which is a mile and i had to be able to change into my navy issued swim gear which is those whatever tan shorts they gave us
1: were you wearing the little seal ball hugger shorts
0: no we didn't get those until you uh did your final multi oh okay those are called udts by the way
1: i call them ball huggers because that's about (laughs) the only thing they're good for
0: i loved them once I
1: earned them, I, I wore them all the time. So um, if anyone wants to know what we're talking about, go check out the best documentary the Navy has ever allowed to be produced. It's called Navy SEALs. I, I think that is the most accurate depiction of the 1980s SEAL team. Um, I'm glad that they were able to get Charlie Sheen through Buds to to make that documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so, um what was rescue? I, I didn't even know there was a rescue swimmer school per se. I knew that there were res- rescue swimmers. I didn't know that it was actually an A school.
0: Yeah, it's a school. It's, uh, it's four weeks. It's very intense. Um, they've got like hell night. Back when I went through, we had hell night. So not getting any sleep. You're going to go from, you know, you get a, get a break in the afternoon and you go back to your, your room and then they come get you and you're doing night swims. Uh it was intense man. I I was literally I think if not the last in my class, I was next to last in my class when I did my swim in. So you do your everybody does this uh 800 meter swim and they take your time and that determines, you know, you, you have to meet a certain cutting score which I met. But compared to everybody else, I was, I mean, they all knew what they were getting into. I had no idea. These were, most of the guys were AWs, so they knew they were going to AWA school, and they went to that after the, uh, for AWs, they went to Air crew School, AW School, and then to, or Air crew School, SAR School, and then to AW School, so a little bit different path pipeline for them. But anyway, it was pretty, it was pretty arduous. I was like, what am I doing here? This is not what I signed up for. This is a lot of uh, trying to hurt gonna, you in the water.
1: I was just going to ask. So the 800-meter um, the swim, was that uh, in the beginning or was that to graduate?
0: No. That's day one, minute one, Oh, 800 meters. Damn. Yeah, it's called a swim in. And if you don't make the time, you're out of school. There, there's no, I get to try again or remediate. It's you do your swim in, you make the cut, and you stay in class. And it was like that with 25 people in my class. I think we graduated eight or nine.
1: Oh, wow. So, again, not picking on the seals, but everyone talks about high attrition and BUDS is like the ultimate in 100 people show up, 25 people graduate. Sounds like this school is not maybe not as physical but definitely as hard and arduous as any other high attrition rating
0: well, i would i would say that seal training is absolutely the toughest training we have to offer across any military
1: oh definitely definitely
0: I also, also believe that people who go to seal training have trained for that specifically. Right. Um, so I think you kind of train to, you know, you you train to race day. That's what you kind of do. Um, SAR so school was pretty tough. Uh, but I would probably say our worst day in SAR school was nowhere close to their best day in, in SEAL training. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did sugar cookies, we would run in the surf. Uh, we had to do an open ocean swim, uh, lots of pull-ups and push-ups, uh, obstacle course. It was pretty arduous and you could never do less. You could never take longer on the obstacle course than you did the previous time, which doesn't sound too difficult, but it is because they always added something in between the obstacle course or before you got to the obstacle course that would tire you out.
1: So right, like hey,
0: we're gonna go an eight mile run. Hey, welcome to this.
1: Oh, you gotta love how the Navy can take something as simple as an obstacle oh, was, course and just make they, it more messy.
0: Man, I came out of there weighing 150.
1: So, you're going back down to your Navy entry level weight then at this point in time. Yeah, so going through rescue swimmer school, um. Was it a Navy only school or were you teamed up with, uh, like I just had David Karras on um, who I got to get you into contact with for some of the wounded warrior stuff. Um, He was a Hilo guy, but he worked very closely with the um, rescue swimmers for the coast guard. Did you guys cross train with them at all? Or were you, was Navy?
0: Five coast guardsmen in our class and they went to their own special training before they went to the Navy training so those guys were studs.
1: Really? So you finished this, what did you say, four-week, five-week class?
0: It's four weeks. It's intense, dude. What
1: What were you thinking at the end of this? Obviously, back in the 80s and even when I joined in the 90s, there was no Google. There was no way you had any
0: no. indication had no of what was the coming close, next. The closest thing I had to compare it to... And this is laughable, so feel free to laugh. This Top Gun, you know, where <laughs> they go in and try and rescue Goose. And oh, I'm that's like, right. Okay, that one so, yeah, I was like, okay, so this is what I do. I get to jump into the ocean and rescue people. That doesn't sound too bad. That seems pretty pretty cool. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I thought about it. But, hey, it gets better, man. They didn't let me go to my next command yet. Like, Hey, we've got another school for you, dude. We're going to hook a brother up. We're going to send you to rappel school. You're going to learn to repel out of a helicopter as well. So you've got all kinds of special skill sets.
1: So real, real quick up to this point, up until you graduate from um, rescue swimmer school, had they put you in a bird and actually gotten you out of a bird yet?
0: Uh, during air crew school, you got picked up by a helicopter and put back down. You never went in the helicopter during SAR school. You got picked up by a helicopter flown around just briefly and then jumped back into the water.
1: So you did leave Uh, the helicopter.
0: Oh yeah. There was no, there was no landing in the helicopter. It was always
1: jumping out of the helicopter and swimming back to the beach. So what was that experience like with you hovering? I don't know how many feet you guys hovered. Um, So they do 10 and 10, 10
0: knots and uh, 10 feet, or they do 15 feet and zero knots. Uh, And that's that's what they call it, but you have to to realize that it's all dependent on the radar altimeter. So it could be a little more, it could be a little less. Uh, You never know what you're getting.
1: So how was that first jump in? As you're watching everyone else go out the bird and you're like, uh, this thing's flying fine.
0: It's kind of surreal, man. You're like, I'm jumping out of a perfectly good helicopter.
1: And you into don't the have a
0: Yeah, into the ocean where God knows what's going on under the water. You know, those are all things that go through your mind. And keep in mind, I'm 18 years old so uh, and a surfer. So I'm like, I know there's sharks out here. Uh, what's going on? Uh, but believe it or not, as soon as you enter the water, all that's gone every bit of that's gone. You're just, you're just reveling in the feeling of, of being there.
1: So this was in what? Pensacola. Pensacola. So you leave the bird, you hit the water. I take it. You're, are you full on Tom, uh, top gun mass snorkel fins, but or are they, yep. are you in some modified version of that?
0: Oh, uh, we're, we're, in a wor- wetsuit top. UDT shorts, those shorts you like the nut huggers. Uh, uh, SAR one, which is an inflatable, uh, it's kind of like a a BC for divers, buoyancy control, but it's really not buoyancy control. It's more for survival uh, mask, fins, and snorkel. So you jump so, out with all that.
1: So during these extra, during these times when you're jumping out and training, um is it rough seas? Is it normal seas? Is it just whatever, whatever happens happens on that day?
0: Uh, it's kind of whatever happens. I mean, they're not going to, if the weather was real bad, they're not going to put you in the water. Uh, but the definition of real bad has changed over the last four decades.
1: I can imagine. Yeah. So going back to rappel school, you have now jumped out of a helicopter several times. Yes. How they want you to climb out on a rope or what was the purpose of the rappel school?
0: To do inland search and rescue. So, uh, there's more, now keep in mind, we didn't have Iraq or Afghanistan or any of that stuff going on. There was none of that going on at the time. Uh, so it was more like a preparatory, like, "Hey, we need people with this skill set. We have to have so many people that have this skill set. So if we need to employ them, we can." Uh, so they sent me to rappel school. I was, dude, I was absolutely the youngest guy by about, I don't know, say one, two, three, seven years between me and the next guy, which is a third class. Um, I was young, but that's what I, I was kicking thing. the pants by a little bit.
1: Sometimes that's a good thing to be the young guy. You're willing to soak it up more. Yeah. So doing the repel stuff, um, I've always been curious because again, I, I always feel like I'm kind of bashing on some of the SF guys and it's not meant to be, but we have you guys. And then we have Sar Corman. Um, who yeah. seemed to be doing some pretty damn amazing search and rescue shit.
0: Yeah, our shark, crewmen were all repel qualified.
1: Where do you put um, the naval search and rescue guys compared to with like the PJs? Because at their core, when they were first brought out, they were literally search and rescue. Uh, go in, grab pilots. Yes. Who down.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I've read the book, So Others May Live. That's a, uh, it's kind of funny because they stole that. That's the search and rescue motto is So Others May Live. But the Coast Guard adopted it for themselves uh, after the fact and made a book about it. Um, PJs then compared to PJs now, I don't think there's much comparison. PJs now are more of a... uh, a special forces augment, you know, the stuff they do and they're trained to do, you know, they're they've got their jump wings, uh, their veterinarian techs, they take care of the SEAL team's dog. Uh you know, I've had the, the privilege of meeting uh numerous PJs and I have the utmost respect for them. Uh, back in the day when I was a search and rescue crewman, i just said I could have kicked all their asses but they were just doing the same thing I was doing.
1: That's what I was curious about, and I I need to get, I have some people I know who who were PJs. I need to get them on to talk, especially uh, this one guy I'm thinking of. He's probably close to your, my age, roughly in that that age group. And he was already retired back in 2010. He probably saw that transition from uh, their primary mission to what it's become now. I'm kind of curious on, how they evolved that way that being said yeah
0: that would be interesting because they are definitely they're definitely soft they're definitely special operations forces now
1: yeah i mean they're they're i think i could be wrong but i think the pjs fall under the tier one moniker like uh dev and um the the unit by that so back to your story because You know, it's the Air Force. We can always get them in later. Um, You finished a repel school. You now have sea capabilities. You have land capabilities. I will now say young, what, second, or SN or AN Fry is now going to his first first command. Where did you end up going?
0: Corpus Christi, Texas. I am so sorry. Talk about a letdown, man! It was like, how did I pull these orders?
1: I am willing to put money on the fact that Corpus Christi, Texas Naval Air Station, looks the exact same as it did when you showed up in the (laughs) eighties.
0: I I bet it does. That is a fire. Well,
1: (laughs) that is a base that time forgot. Yes. Um. Great people, though. Oh, I bet. You can't overlook
0: the fact they're great people.
1: So you, you as a SAR guy, you're doing uh, rotary wing helicopter stuff. Yeah. What are you flying in at that time?
0: I'm in a Huey, twin-engine Huey.
1: Okay, so you're, you're still back in the Huey days. So were yeah. you with a deployable command at the time? No? No. So, what were you guys doing on a day-to-day basis?
0: Uh, training. Um, for so. In Corpus, there's Corpus Christi Army Depot, which is where they do send all the army's helicopters for rework. So there's a lot of FCS going on. So that's potential for a rescue. And then we had a lot of reservists. Uh, which I thought was normal back then, but now that I look at them, I'm like, hey, it's probably not so normal. Uh, they would fly out there and they flew the the Tomcat. In fact, that's one of the rescues out there was a Tomcat uh, augered in. Uh, so we would just train for rescues. And uh, I didn't do any repelling there, none. I was much later in my career that I went to an inland search and rescue uh, command and I did a ton of repelling there.
1: So now that you're at a active unit and you're doing your job, let's talk about your first rescue.
0: So my first rescue was a non-rescue. This is This guy decided he was, yeah, The that's yeah, pretty interesting, dude. You can't make this shit up. So a guy runs the gate guard in AS Corpus Christi in a van. So now security forces is chasing him. and don't think about it through today's eyes. We didn't have any of these bollards or all that other stuff going on. It was just a dude standing at the gate, maybe armed, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, So he goes busting through the gate. He drives all the way out to... Uh, what was it called a roadie point? Anyway, he jumps the van into the ocean. So Damn. we launch right away. I mean, as, as soon as they say uh, there's a van in the water, we launch. Uh, took us maybe five minutes, four and a half minutes. We're pretty good at what we do. Uh, we get out there and there's, there's a uh, scrawny little dude. He's like, save her. Saver. So we're like, okay, there's somebody still in the van, man. So uh we did some creative stuff back then. Eads bottles were uh not part of the Navy's uh gear issue. So a helicopter emergency egress device, which is also known as spare air in the dive community. Oh, okay. So we had some divers out there. So we wound up hooking up a spare air and going underwater at a roadie point. So it's a point. So it's pretty choppy. Um, I broke three fingers that
1: day. Interesting. Tell more. Yeah.
0: So it's a van. It's a, it's a panel wagon van. Uh, it's got like a steel gate or still a steel, uh, partition between the driver and the, the back seat. So we're trying to get into the van and the current comes along as I'm opening the van and I'm trying to to get in to like push the door open. It gets slammed closed. So uh, these three fingers got jammed up pretty quick. So now I'm operating with these two fingers (laughs) and I'm underwater breathing spare air, by the way. Let's not forget that. This is a little canister of air I'm underwater breathing, it's not like scuba, even though it is like scuba. I mean, I'm a diver myself, so, but uh, just crazy. Uh, we wind up putting a, another guy in the water uh, with a Scott air pack on. So a Scott air pack is what the firefighters use. So you put a Scott air pack on, so it's got this huge face mask, and he's just letting these huge bubbles release as he exhales, but he's, he's able to keep a seal on his face, and we go through the back doors, the two back doors instead of the sliding door, and there's no one in there. The guy was talking about the van. Save her!
1: Save oh Jesus! Her. How so, far out were you guys?
0: Thirty feet. <laughs> so you—it was ridiculous. The so on-scene you, commander the person who was in charge of the whole thing was the base XO who was in his private boat. He was the on-scene commander. And I'm sure he had been (laughs) drinking. Yeah. Pretty sure he had a drink or two.
1: So you guys ended up uh, launching a Huey, putting into the water to save a sunken van.
0: Yep which we did save later on that day.
1: Uh, So let's talk about your first human save.
0: (laughs) So that'd be commander Ruth. He was an A-4 pilot.
1: Oh, wow. I haven't heard about A-4s in forever. Yeah. Back in the day, man. Those things were little tiny go-getters.
0: Yeah. He was flying Sinatra's plane. So he was flying triple zeros. That was a, Commander Naval Aviation training Sinatra. Sinatra was home ported or home based out of uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. So the one star there had his own plane. Commander Ruth uh, was out there doing, I want to say reservist training. I've got his name packed somewhere. But uh, smoke and fume inhalation is what caused him to eject. The plane flew. Four miles after he ejected and crashed into the Oso Bay.
1: Where's the Oso Bay?
0: It's right out the gate. Oh, <laughs> and it's only like four feet deep. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. It <laughs> was absolute crazy.
1: So, what was that rescue like then? I mean, you're you get the call. Obviously, you guys jump. Into the bird, you take off.
0: I tell you, man, everything is, is like slow motion. It's like, what's my next thing I'm supposed to be doing? It's A, B, C, D, E. You're just going through a mental checklist. And if you don't get the response you need, obviously, you'll pause. But uh, there's not a lot of time for you to think outside of that. I mean, that's just what's been ingrained in you. Is this is what we do, it's very reactive. Uh, in a good way. I mean, in a trained reactive way. So, so you, you, get, you get kicked out into the water. The guy's in a raft. Uh, he's doing pretty well. He's not in any kind of... He's not. He's got some bruised uh, shins, because when you eject, you tend to bruise your shins or even break a leg. Uh, pretty cool cat. I'm an E3 at the time, so... Plucking a commander out of the water is pretty
1: huge. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Um, took his name tag off his flight suit. <laughs> keep that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is, that a, is that a thing for rescue guys when they pull pilots out?
0: It kind of is a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing today, but I know back in the day it was absolutely a thing. When you went in, if now keep in mind, if there was a lot going on, you're not going to rip the guy's name tag off right then. But if everything's looking copacetic, name tag off, buddy. That's mine. It goes right in your SAR one pocket. That's that flotation device I was telling you about. Yeah, you got a little pocket in there. You stuff it right in that float that uh, pocket. Uh, pretty, pretty easy textbook rescue. Brought down the rescue strop, hooked the guy up, raised him up, and they sent it down for me. And I hook up with uh, the same thing and and ride the strop
1: up. So. Back in the 80s, um, did you guys have, so was there a corpsman on board, all your birds, or did they give you some sort of basic medical training?
0: No, I don't think I have ever flown without a corpsman. Okay. Not say ever. There might have been one day or two days where we went out and did some training. We didn't take a corpsman, but on every mission I've flown, we always had a SAR corpsman.
1: Because I know that that's a, that's a Corman sea school now is uh, search and rescue corpsman. And apparently they get, they get wet too now, from what I understand. I could be wrong, but that's the way that they made it sound, was that they're getting wet as uh, well.
0: I would say that's possible, especially if you've got somebody that needs to be placed in a litter in the water where you would send a corpsman down to help triage them. I haven't seen that before, but I have seen it where we send a corpsman down with the litter into a submarine. So it's a vertical approach. Uh, the, the litter's vertical and the corpsman goes down with it. Uh, oh, okay. And you you take them out, hydrostatic something shock, hydrostatic shock. There's some kind of thing you have to worry about when you pull somebody out of a submarine vertically with their blood loss or whatever. But that's why you always send a corman.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, that makes sense. So you do this rescue. What's the after party like for the for the new guy getting his first? human rescue
0: it's pretty huge i got drunk do they do like a wet down i'm like 18 years old still i don't think i'd made it to 19 (sighs) Karen and i are married we've got one kid no we're pregnant with a kid uh we have a kid uh hey we're gonna have to pause again
1: okay we're pausing yeah all right we're back So you were saying um, you were married at the time you did your first rescue big party. So let's pick up from there.
0: So we went to a place called city limits, man. We call it shitty limits effective or uh, affectionately Uh, just a little dive bar right on the, on the water. And uh, the chiefs got me destroyed. There was Senior Chief Krieg, Chief Lutz, uh, Chief Query. They got me so destroyed. Um, and they took care of me, though. It wasn't like they left me on my own. They, they tucked me up under their little wing. And it, was a different, it was a different time back then, too. I mean, what I had done was save somebody's life. And if, you know, essentially, and they kind of looked at it that way.
1: That makes sense. I mean, it's always a good thing that uh, you have good mentors that that take care of you. And I think that's one of the things that we miss in the civilian world is we don't really have mentors. But um, so going back to work after that, did you feel like you were on cloud nine? You were the man?
0: Uh, maybe a little bit, but mostly I just went back to work, man. I was looking forward to something a little more exciting than that.
1: So you had mentioned that uh, a Tomcat went in. Were you on that rescue?
0: I was not on that
1: rescue. Okay. So after Corpus, where did you go after Corpus?
0: Norfolk, Virginia.
1: I am so sorry.
0: Oh, yeah. 8C6, Chargers.
1: So now were those guys uh, deployable?
0: Yeah, we were a combat squadron. Oh, okay. HC stands for helicopter combat squadron. So,
1: see, I need to learn my Navy aviation. I barely know my Marine Corps aviation.
0: <laughs> it's all good.
1: <laughs> so, you guys, I, must, I will make the guess. This is what, 88, 89?
0: No, this is 92.
1: Okay. So, you got, you missed, uh, I don't want to say missed, but you guys weren't involved with uh, uh, God, the Gulf War. Desert storm?
0: No. In fact, my daughter was being born the day that kicked off. Uh, I was in the birthing room with my daughter being born.
1: So she started a a war.
0: Yep, she started a war.
1: So now um, now you're actually going, you know you're going to go to sea. What is it like for a helicopter squadron to get ready to go to sea?
0: So we had 11 detachments. So there's like 11 mini-squadrons, if you will. Uh, they're comprised of about 21 people, uh, enlisted ranks, and then six officers, or seven officers. So about 28 people total uh, would go to sea uh, with two helicopters. They'd go out and do God's work, whatever that turned out to be. Mostly it was... a. Uh, vertical replenishment, we'd go out and resupply the warships or the warfighter with food. Um, I wasn't that fortunate. I got to go out on the um, first ever HC or H46 Sardet. So we went out on a a gator boat. we were a single plane, not two, just one, which means you really got to keep that thing in shape because it's relied on 24 hours a day. Um, I flew 474 hours on that deployment.
1: How long are your deployments typically?
0: Deployments typically for six months. That deployment... That deployment was 283 days.
1: Oh, wow. So, again... That's about
0: 100 days
1: longer than
0: yeah. the normal deployment.
1: I'm going to go off my limited knowledge of the East Coast and say you guys uh, did a med float or did you guys go somewhere else?
0: Oh, brother, I went somewhere else. I told you it's going to get a little interesting. Yeah. I went straight to...
1: Somalia. Oh, I forgot. That happened in 92.
0: It happened in 93. I went to, so I didn't go there until January of 93, and I left there the end of September of 93, right before Black Hawk Down, the movie, happened. But uh, I had spent nine months out there, essentially. So Seven, a little over seven, effectively, because we had transit time
1: so let's talk about that. Um, I thought it was in late 92. We went and started to do the, uh, do the mission where they, well, I think 91,
0: we actually picked up the Somalia civil war humanitarian effort. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, but as things progressed, uh, a deed, I can't remember his whole name.
1: It's, Oh yeah, it's I know not, who you're. Yeah, the the warlord guy.
0: Yeah, the warlord. Uh, as things progressed, uh, the civil war became kind of our focus because we needed to get this humanitarian relief to the people who were starving. So it was a humanitarian uh, mission that had a um, a warlike effort behind it, I guess. Uh, I mean, I was an aerial door gunner uh, for the Marines and Special Forces guys over there. Uh, We weren't providing humanitarian assistance to everybody, I can tell you that.
1: So let's let's talk about that. You, again, sign up thinking you're going to go to a welding school and become an underwater welder. That gets shit canned and now you go and think you're going to become a, what is it? Aviation structural mechanic type guy. And you go to air crew school, part of, part of the deal. And you get thrown in this uh, weird pitch that says, no, now you're going to go jump out of helicopters and pick people out of the sea. You do that for a while. You get this deployment and now they say, see this helicopter? Here's a probably a 50 cal. Um, here's how you use cal. Here's how you use it. Now we're gonna take you to Somalia and you're gonna work with the Marines and the SEALs to do whatever it is we need you to do on those missions. So they actually
0: summer of 92, I went to it's called FRAC, Fleet Replacement Air Crew. The 46 because I was transitioning from a Huey and I could learn about the 46. And while I was there, I went to aerial door gunner school because they knew the ship was popping off. I mean, and we needed more people qualified to shoot the, the BMG 50 cal. Uh, it's an unsuppressed gun, by the way. I, we don't use it anymore. We use a Gal 21 and something else nowadays. But uh, so by the time. By the time I finished that, I was, I don't want to say I was proficient, but I was very exposed to how to use that weapon. It's called a crew served weapon. Um, And then we went to, when we got to Somalia, very strange, you know, I had never experienced any of these kind of, you know, high profile briefs, confidential, you're talking about in certain SEALs, you're talking about in certain force, recon Marines, Uh, We even had some Belgian special forces, which is kind of cool. They wear like purple camis. I don't understand why, but uh, (laughs) they did. Um, So, yeah, we did a lot of insertion extraction stuff. It was crazy. Uh, Not very much of the vertical replenishment at all.
1: So how did that affect you? Um, I'm I'm not going to ask you the typical question that someone would ask you about that situation but knowing that there was a, I lost your video. Did I lose you? Oh, there you are. Yeah, I got you back. So knowing that you were leaving a gator freighter, which is uh, what you were probably on was a gator freighter and having to take people in to engage enemy targets. How did that make you feel? coming from the rescue swimmer side?
0: Uh, It was a conflict. You know, uh, the search and rescue side, that's about helping people. So the initial part of of Somalia was humanitarian. And I got this nice little humanitarian medal for it, um, which seemed to fit the mold of search and rescue. You're there to save lives, not take lives. I was never meant to be a trigger puller. That was... I never signed up to be a trigger puller. Um, The aerial door gunner stuff was meant to provide us a defensive as well as an offensive uh, component for landing in LZs, which is what we used it for. It was purely for, you know, uh, insertion and Extraction. Yeah. yeah. Um, So it was definitely, it was different. It was very different. I'm pretty sure I wrote home about it, talked about uh, how much it kind of affected me. You know, just seeing all those people, you know, Black Hawk Down's a great movie, um, but let's remember it's a movie and it doesn't depict all of what we did over there. It depicts a single day. One day. One day there was a lot more people.
1: Yeah. One day that went bad. Not any of the good days.
0: Well, not any of the other bad days either. We had a Cobra shot down over there and we airlifted that guy out with a 53. Oh, really? Yeah. We threw a strap around it. I have great video footage of it.
1: Nice. So Um, that,
0: that was the Blackhawks were just. I don't know why they got all the notoriety behind it. I'm not picking on them. I mean, what they did was Herculean. Uh, when I think we lost 21 guys that day. Uh, I wasn't there for when we went in and rescued. I left uh, and was re- we were relieved by, I think, the Kearsarge. It might have been the Essex, but I think it was the Kearsarge. They relieved us on scene. And they're the ones that actually went in and rescued uh, the captain or the uh, lieutenant. No, it was a captain. It was a captain.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's a whole different because we forget about Somalia. We talk about uh, we also forget about Desert Shield too. But um, while you were there, uh, what were did you guys ever take fire?
0: Indiscriminate.
1: Did you ever, I guess the, the better part of the question would have been, did you ever feel uh, like your life was at risk because of enemy fire? I fired. But I mean, did you feel like, <laughs> let me rephrase it. Did you ever feel like you guys had a possibility of getting shot down? Yes. Okay.
0: And, it's, a, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, too, because you can't see where it's coming from. I mean, they're not using tracers to show you where they're coming from. So
1: I was going to say that's something that the movies like to over dramatize is tracer fire.
0: Yeah, they're not shooting tracers at you. They're shooting bullets. Bullets travel at a pretty high velocity.
1: Yes, they do. So you had mentioned earlier that you think that you wrote, um, wrote something down. I know back then, again, this is 93, 92. Email was just barely coming online. How was communicating home? Um,
0: Mars grams, man. What were 50 words or less? You could communicate. It would be, it would go over shortwave radio. You could also use the Mars line. You would go wait in line, which I did. Cause I had a brand new son at the time. Uh, our third kid had arrived right before I left. I think I left him when he was 10 days old. I got back. He was just at a year. So we would communicate via this Mars grams, which like I said, it's 50 words or less. Uh, or you would get wait up and go up to the gym and wait for midnight to come around and get a shortwave operator. Uh, you would, you could, he would, connect to them and they would call your house you could talk to your wife or or whoever for five minutes
1: so uh, no email yeah i was gonna say so you've lived the experience of mainly communication through these marsgrams or through good old-fashioned letter writing
0: yeah we numbered our letters
1: now you also retired in after a time where we've been at war for what 10, 15 years and people on remote outposts have cell phone service. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? On being able to have instant communication with home versus how you were back in Somalia?
0: I think it requires quite a bit of responsibility. Just because you have the capability doesn't mean you should use the capability, especially uh, in a, a more specific instance. You know, if, if something's going on and you're taking hostile fire, that's not time to call home to mama and say, hey, things are going south here. You don't need to get her all red alert about what's going on over there. Oh, by the way, you shouldn't be talking about your mission over an open line, so... On the flip side of that, I think it's great that when you do get back uh, off the line, that you can call home and do a little bit of diffusing and talk to mom or or whoever, say, hey, you know, had a rough day today, whatever. So I think that's cool. It's, it's immediate feedback. When we were writing letters, Carrie and I, I mean, it would take weeks to hear back.
1: You know, I I know that we experienced when I was in Iraq um, a security breach, just exactly what uh, you shouldn't be doing. Someone had mentioned something about uh, a mission that we went on into Fallujah back home, and like there was news coverage of it before we even left the gate. Yeah, so CNN. Uh, uh, fortunately for us, it was local Miami news, um, didn't make national. And it really wasn't, we, our mission wasn't that important. We were holding some things while the Iraqis did some stuff. That was it. No special operations, no anything in particular, but some kids said to mama to not mama, but to mom, Hey, we're going into the city tonight. it may be dangerous. we have never done it before or something to that effect. And it blew everything up. Um, but we also had problems with guys getting Dear John letters hours before going on a mission and not getting a letter, but getting an email or having a phone call. I, I was always torn by whether or not that was a good idea or not. And now hearing people have um, I have some friends who were in Afghanistan just a few years back and it's like, oh, yeah, we had our cell phones on us all the time. I hate to say it. I think I kind of like the communications thing that you guys were stuck with. So with Somalia, um, don't mean to harp on it. It's just, it's such a rare thing to talk to someone who was actually there. What were the, were you guys ever interacting directly with the locals? Yes. What was their take on you guys?
0: Mixed. Uh, I would say most of them were very welcoming because they knew what we were there for. Um, There was a lot of blue hatters that came in uh, later, the blue berets and all that. I think you're familiar with those cats. Um, Making a United Nations kind of mission, but uh, for the most part, I'd say they were pretty welcoming. Um, I didn't understand most of what they were talking about, so I just kind of carried on smartly. the kids, those were, those were definitely disturbing times to see all these starving kids. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not like any commercial you see on TV about, hey, for 19 cents a day, you can feed a kid or whatever. Uh, it's, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, I can, I can only you know, imagine. All we,
0: all we were trying to do was get food to these people. Um, but it took weapons to get it there because they were still on the food the rebels were still in the food.
1: So do you think, um, looking back in our recent interactions with Somalia, that we made a difference during the time you were there?
0: Nope. I think until they get... internally, until they want to... Fix themselves. We're wasting our time. We're spending a lot of money and a lot of energy. I mean, we're still over there today, brother. Yeah. Uh, we don't talk about. It. We're there, uh, and that civil war's still going on. It's a crazy place. I mean, uh, so no, I don't. I mean, I'd like to think we made a difference. We fed some people. We killed some people. Um, we didn't make any friends really, though, while we were there. Uh, in fact, I'd say we probably the opposite of that. We made a bunch of enemies um, with, with some leadership folks. Uh, but to, you know, when I was there, I didn't think about any of that. I just thought about every day, whatever we were doing that day.
1: Yeah. You know, so I'm uh, speaking
0: today from reflective point. But,
1: uh, right. Right. So let me ask you this as a young, I am a, will guess what third class by that time. As a young third class, um, what was your take on working with the special operations guys?
0: I thought they were super cool, man. These guys were, were so laid back. Um, we would drop them off one day, we'd insert them into LZ, whatever. And then, you know, three or four days later, we'd go and extract them from the same LZ, or not, not necessarily the same LZ, but that was preference. If we hadn't destroyed our, uh, it's reliability or compromised it. Then we'd go back to the same one or we'd go to an alternate. Uh, That's kind of like what you see in the movies where they have a backup. Right. Call it out. But, you know, you see these guys three or four days later and they're exhausted, man. I don't know that they ate anything. i definitely know they didn't sleep. You know, they'd be coming on with their guns. And I'd be like, literally I'm like barrel down and I'm not telling them, I'm just grabbing the barrel, putting the barrel down. Uh, can't be shooting out my rotors.
1: (laughs) That would be a bad thing. They
0: were just tired. They were so tired. Uh, And it just, it really made me appreciate what we have going on in our country. You know, we have people like that who will go out and do God knows what, man, uh, to secure our freedom and to try and help other people secure theirs. Even though I don't think we made that much of a difference. I mean, the goal was to, Secure their freedom, you know, to help end their civil war and get them out from that uh, that warlord. Uh, and we did wind up getting a uh, a presidential election some years later and all that. But uh but yeah, working with the SEALs and the Force Recon Marines, and we did a lot with EOD, believe it or not.
1: Oh, I I completely believe that.
0: Yeah, we did a lot with EOD, uh, a lot of explosions there. Um, it was pretty cool, man. It, it really made me rethink what I was doing. I was like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe I need to try and convert to this.
1: I was gonna ask you that. Did you ever think about trying this, this screener?
0: I did. Um, wife and three kids and seeing the lifestyle they had, I wasn't ready to commit to that level.
1: That makes sense. So as you guys left Somalia, did you guys on that deployment do any rescues at all? Or was it all just in support of Somalia? It
0: was all in support of Somalia. So I did some training exercises where we would, uh, there's some big sharks out there, by the way, (laughs) sharks. Turns out they won't eat you, but they're huge.
1: Oh yeah, I've seen pictures of whale sharks and divers next to them. Not, yeah, they're huge. I don't believe that they won't eat you. They may not try to bite you, but they may accidentally <laughs> suck you in.
0: <laughs> You're plankton.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: no, no rescues uh, whatsoever out there. Uh, like I said, we did mostly, we call it PAX mail cargo, PMC. So we were responsible for quite a few things. Uh, I flew with the Marines quite a bit. So that's where I did all the aerial door gunner stuff was the Marines would go out and insert, uh, the force recon Marines, uh, on the Navy side, we would insert the seals, but so would the Marines too. Um, but mostly it was, it was our unit that would, uh, insert the seals. So it was a long deployment. I was tired. I was ready to come home for sure. You know, I got shot at, uh, and Kismayu and I was like, what the hell's going on here? Uh, you know, the, the first time you get you hear a bullet, you're like, This is real.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That 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 snap. You, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, like this is real.
1: So you guys leave Somalia, um, you steam your way home. At any point in time. So this would have been what you either just re enlisted or you're coming up on an enlistment. At any point in time, did you think, okay, I did my term. It's time for me to find something new to do. Or did you know after that, that you wanted to stay in for 20?
0: Oh, I never knew that. I never knew the 20th year, 20 year commitment. Uh, after four years, I thought I wanted to get out and be a cop. Um, what stopped you? It seemed like the to uh, do We got pregnant with our third kid, and it just seemed like timing was off, so um, we were actually headed to Guam, and we wound up going to Norfolk.
1: I can see why you would have wanted to get out. Guam versus Norfolk.
0: Oh, I love Guam, dude. I spent 13 years there. Did you really? Yeah.
1: So what happened to you after Somalia in the, what I'll call the in-between time between um, Somalia ending and 9-11?
0: Oh, we went, we were home for uh, 56 days. 56. We were what's called the ready, 56 days. We were the ready up debt. We went to Haiti. You know, that little place called Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It was on fire.
1: I knew it from the earthquake, which was, what, 2008, 2009? What happened in the 90s?
0: They had their own little civil uprising. They were setting fire to everything. So that was 93 as well. And uh, all these people, there was a mass exodus. So we had all these refugees leaving Haiti.
1: And, so was it similar uh, to we like was, the Cuban boat crisis thing?
0: Uh, you know, I wasn't there for the Cuban thing, but I think so. I would say probably yes.
1: Basically anything that could float, they would try to get on to get over to?
0: Absolutely. Anything that could float or, or they could, you know, tie together something that would make a bigger raft. Um, and those were not good times, man. We. Admiral Border was our uh, CNO at the time, pretty famous Admiral. Uh, Our rules of engagement were pretty clear. You're going to destroy all rafts.
1: Destroy all rafts? Rafts. Destroy them? Destroy them
0: with a 50 cal.
1: Uh, I'm assuming with people not on board.
0: That was preferred.
1: Do I want to dive into this uh, can of worms? Let's do it. Sure. So what was, the, what was the reasoning behind that?
0: You know, I didn't ask any questions, man. I had the utmost respect for him board. I got to meet him and shake his hand. Um, I thought he was a pretty amazing guy. Uh, and I don't know if the decision actually came from Helm or if it was from SecDef or
1: who was President Clinton. That was uh, Clinton.
0: Yeah, I think it was Clinton. But uh, after Somalia, that seemed easier.
1: Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. Um...
0: So, I mean, it was, I mean, I was on a, USS San Diego, and uh, not a normal ship in our group. And the CEO of the ship, just a huge man, just huge, six, seven, six, eight, ginormous man. He came out with a 50 cal and he held it like Rambo and shot it, or like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and just shot it. And he was shooting at a raft. It had people on it still, but he didn't care. Mission was sink all rafts.
1: <laughs> That's some crazy shit.
0: Yeah, it is pretty crazy shit. I guess we're trying to keep them out of Miami. I don't know. Wow. We called it the Haitian vacation. Uh,
1: yeah. So how long did you guys do that mission? About two months.
0: Two months and they realized this... This group of people have been gone from their families for over a year.
1: So they, they actually uh, figured that out, that, hey, maybe uh, after sending you guys into combat in Somalia, then keeping you home for what you said, 56 days-ish, and then mm-hmm. throwing you down there, that maybe that's not a good idea.
0: Yeah, well, while we were down there, oh, by the way, we would alternate between Haiti and Gitmo. That's before the concentration, or the, excuse me, I can't say that. That's before the camps were set up.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's before anyone knew that Gitmo was a thing.
0: Yeah. So I spent a lot of, I crashed in Gitmo. It was a pretty remarkable. I crashed on the uh, USNS Comfort.
1: Let's go into that. How did you crash?
0: We had a dual engine rollback and just planted ourselves right on the deck.
1: So, with helicopters, crashing is different than with aircraft.
0: Yeah, I think most times the helicopter lands, it's a controlled crash to begin with. So, uh, not too much difference other than the Gs you pull. We have a, on the 46, we have a, it's called a 3G light. So, if you pull more than three Gs, this lighting system comes on and it has to be physically reset. You can't just uh, manually reset. You know what I'm saying? You have to go back and reset it. Uh, but that requires quite a bit of an inspection. And oh, by the way, that's probably my first traumatic brain injury. Yeah. I we was were, in the hellhole.
1: We were going to get into that a little bit later, but um, let's touch on that real quick. So one of the reasons why you left the Navy uh, after 32 years was c- cumulative TBI type injuries. What did they do for TBI back then? Or, I mean, obviously it wasn't even called TBI back then, but what was your protocol for getting your head rambled around back then? Shake it off. Was it shake it off or drink it off or both?
0: Well, we deglamorized alcohol, but it was definitely drink it off.
1: Yeah. Do you... Do you hold anything, Um, I guess that's a weird question to ask, if you hold any grudges towards any of the M.O.s or corpsmen who just said, uh, you'll be fine, knowing what you know now about TBI?
0: Uh, I don't hold any grudges. I think we were all equally ignorant to, you know, we had just come out of a period where we hadn't been at war in essentially 20 years. So combat was not anything that most of the people that were serving had any knowledge of. Uh, so I don't blame anybody for that. You know, looking back today, it's it's very clear that you can see, hey, that was a TBI, and obviously the military's recognized that too. Like, yeah, those are traumatic brain injuries; those are concussions. You know, one and the same. You can call it a concussion, you can call it a TBI. Uh, but yeah, I'm not. I don't harbor any bad feelings towards anybody. I don't think yeah. anybody was maliciously trying to undersell it. I mean, hell, I undersold it. I was, I was just like uh, John Wayne, you know, like, hey, no big deal.
1: Well, and you guys, um, not not you guys as in rescue swimmers, but you guys as in flight guys, were in a very similar boat to Seal uh, Swick EOD, where you had to have a special physical every year, and if you had any issues, you were. Your UPS chip was snaked real quick.
0: Yeah, you're done. So you did everything you could to to at least on the outside represent that you were healthy.
1: Yeah. And I know um, roughly that would have cost you probably, I don't know what it was back then, but I think now it would have cost you probably about 500 bucks a month if you lost your flight status. Because...
0: Uh, yeah, flight pay and SAR pay because I do both.
1: Yeah, so um, what people don't understand is an E at the time you were probably what an E four or five, e four. e four with. Well, I
0: made E five while I was in Haiti, but okay.
1: I didn't so, know it. I... So an E five with eight years in, probably back then, was a few was probably around eighteen hundred bucks a month, which every single this is what people understand is what every single e5 in the navy with the same amount of years in made the exact same amount as you did for your base pay but then because like you just said you had flight pay you had sar pay you were getting these little extra kickers um just like the team guys the eod guys they were getting hazardous duty pay intermittent duty or Intimate danger pay, they were getting... Jumped. I drew
0: imminent danger pay the whole time we were in Somalia and Haiti.
1: Yeah. So there, there's an incentive not to have that pay taken away from you. Um, much like retirees who aren't thinking, who live in an area where you get super high BAH. Yeah, I get half my pay, but then they forget that that BAH that they've been getting for the last three years goes away too. Yeah. So... um you get your first big TBI, you shake it off, drink it off, and you're back on duty probably within 24 hours. I'm, I'm guessing.
0: Yeah. Less than that. Um, we fixed the plane and flew out the next afternoon.
1: Damn. That's, that is it's a,
0: a combat squadron. It's yeah. a combat squadron. That's what, that's, that's how you do business. You don't, don't sit around you're uh like i said we were in between haiti and gitmo uh simultaneously so the ship kind of drives what you're doing where they need their asset so
1: and i'm assuming that uh the san diego was not a carrier because i'm pretty sure i know all the carriers back
0: then no san diego is not in fact now it's a usns ship um it was a uh oiler I want
1: to say it was an oiler. It wasn't an ammo ship. I think it was an oiler. So their A-O- embarked, the, the embarked flight What's crew, that? The, the, the flight crew that was embarked on that ship was probably just you guys. Correct. One helicopter and your flight crew. Correct. So you have this unique ability to be on deployments where it's just you. Yeah.
0: Alone and unafraid.
1: Oh, you know they—they made a show similar name, naked and unafraid. Um. (laughs) So, what happens after after the Haiti Gitmo deal for you?
0: See, that's nineties. I did a couple more deployments. Nothing crazy. Uh, I went out and supported the mission in Iraq. Um, from more of a vertical replenishment. That's what I talked to you about earlier, where we've provided, you know, packs, mail, and cargo to the warfighter. Uh, no was 50 this, cals, none of that.
1: Was this all still pre 911?
0: Yeah, this is all pre 911.
1: Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, there was one other conflict that kicked off between uh, which, when you're talking about and. which was Kosovo. Did you guys do any support for that?
0: Uh, Minimal. Um, We were actually, we had actually gone in um, for a PAX mail cargo kind of run when Kosovo was kicking off and it was pretty scary. We ran back to the helicopter. Oh, really? We weren't armed. Yeah, we weren't armed. We were not there in that capacity. We were there purely as a you know providing Support. passenger assistance, yeah mail and and whatever cargo they needed. so that was pretty treacherous, I shouldn't say treacherous. That was pretty challenging. Uh, like I said, we all ran back to the helicopter and we took off immediately, and that was that that was that was my whole exposure to Kosovo.
1: so you guys were actually um in country then or in on land for that mission
0: yeah we were sitting at their airport
1: oh okay Were you, did you see hillary clinton get sniped
0: no i didn't see that but i would have like to
1: i don't think anyone else did either yeah i had to throw that in um <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm okay with it
1: so uh so you are doing your thing. And we're just going to jump right ahead to that day. Where were you stationed in September of 2001?
0: I was in LDO school.
1: Okay. So let's jump back real quick. So at some point in time, you went from, uh, what rate were you again? Was it rescue swimmer rate or? AT. AT5 or AT2. So I know there's no, there is no AT1. such thing as at Oh, did you make first? Yeah. Okay.
0: I actually so, made chief, but it's
1: a long story. Okay. So AT1 picks up or gets selected for chief, but somehow becomes an LDO, which is a limited duty officer. Yes. What made you decide to put in that package?
0: Uh, there's a couple of things, you know, I really got tired of hearing people in charge telling us what to do, but they had no idea what that actually meant. Does that make sense?
1: No, it absolutely
0: does. They, they didn't understand what it took to accomplish uh, what they were asking. Uh, they were very—I call them bean counters—and I just didn't like them. And I—I I really didn't like officers, by the way. I was not a friend of officers so it was more uh more or less a little bit of a stub my nose at them say you know what can't beat them join them and we'll fight it from within uh but i did have a a couple of very sharp uh cwos some chief foreign officers and two ldos that kind of shaped me for that and i was like you know what i like what these guys are doing that's what i want to be doing I want to be leading from the front, taking care of my people and making shit happen. You know?
1: So with LDO, um, how am I trying to say this? With the, with the LDO program, did you know where you were going to end up or did you put all your cards on the table and say, I may be a surface warfare officer or I may be aviation? No,
0: you know, you absolutely know. You get selected by designator. So okay. I knew I would stay in aviation. And more so I would stay in the search and rescue community. So I combat, combat squadrons, uh, pretty much my whole career. That's all I did.
1: Okay. So you get selected. Um, what was, what was that experience like? Just knowing that you are now going to be a sir.
0: It was, it was amazing. Uh, I remember calling my wife and saying, hey, I, I just found out I got selected for LDO. And she's like, what? And I was an alternate. Remember, I told you there was a little funny story about the chief thing. Uh, I was an alternate. So some uh, senior chief had actually dis- declined his commission. So they picked the first alternate, and I was the first alternate on the list. So I got commissioned uh, before the chief's pinning. Let me see. August 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 first. So I missed it by about 46 days.
1: Yeah. So in retrospect, do you think you could have done more for your community as a chief? Or do you think going the route that you went? Uh the route that I went. Okay. The
0: the route that I went. Um absolutely. And I sat down with my CNC and we talked about it. You know, before I made my decision, I was like, you know, this is it wasn't something I was expecting. I didn't really expect to get picked up so quickly. I got picked up my first time. Um, so I was more set on making chief and and going from there.
1: Right. no, that Things makes change. That makes total change sense.
0: And, yeah. And I don't look back on it. Uh, I had thirteen brothers and sisters that uh, done, chief. That year, and I was there with them. I actually went shopping together for khakis, but I didn't have the uh, I didn't have the ability to defer my payments like they did at the Navy Exchange. I had to pay for my shit right then.
1: So, what did you end up getting? Because I mean, I can tell you the uniform costs going from blue shirt to khakis is not fucking cheap. No. And I mean, I skimped. I went. Khakis, dress blues, the cheap version, and summer whites. There was no way you were going to get me to buy the the choker whites. So i I can only imagine what it must cost, what that bill was like for you, going the whole nine yards. Because
0: it was a little over a thousand bucks. Because
1: um, back then I didn't you wa-
0: bu- I didn't buy a, a service dress. So I bought. I didn't buy blues. I was in Guam, so I bought uh, whites, a couple pairs of khakis, uh, you know, the combo cover, all that stuff. Uh,
1: So did you buy the tropicals? Did you get the little uh, officer shorts?
0: I regret that. (laughs) That's a regret I have. It's not getting the tropicals. Did you ever...
1: Did you ever see anyone actually wear those things? In Guam, they wore it all the time. Really? I have never seen someone actually in the tropicals. They make an illicit version of that. Do they really?
0: They made a dungaree version. Dungaree shorts with knee-high socks. Yep, it's pretty crazy. I've seen it.
1: Oh, that's so disturbing just thinking about that. I, I mean, I honestly do miss the blue shirts to the khakis, but see, uh, yeah, there's just certain things that should never be seen and that's dungaree shorts. Yeah. Oh God. Um, <laughs> so you do the LDO thing. Where do you go to LDO school at? Pensacola. Okay. So you're back here in the States when 9-11 happens.
0: Yeah. I'm sitting in Pensacola, Florida, in the middle of a English class. Huh? English taking I, English. Had
1: t- you had English to take class. English? Yes. So I am kind of curious before we get into the 9-11 thing. Um, you had no high school diploma.
0: Uh, so while I was in Norfolk, uh, after Haiti, when I came back before my next deployment, which is only like three months later, by the way, uh, I had an officer engage with me. He's called our maintenance officer, so he was a mustanger, an LDO, and he made me go get my GED and oh, apply okay. for Seaman Admiral program.
1: Not Seaman from Admiral, but Seaman to Admiral.
0: Seaman to Admiral.
1: Huh? Yeah, because we used to call it the other way. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you so you did get your GED, but basically in terms of becoming an officer, you had the longest shot in the world. High school dropout, gets his GED in the night, like, eight years later. Did you do any college while you were in?
0: I did. I went to college uh, as soon as I got commissioned. I, oh, before I had gone to, college, I'd gone to college when I was an E5 okay. as well. Uh, and taking some. I was an EMT, and I took some philosophy and kind of fiddled around with college. Um, but then when I got commissioned, I went to school at Emmett Riddle. I went to school pretty much full time. Because um, I was on short duty, my first tour as an ensign. I was on short duty. So I went, to, I went to college, got my associates banged out and I don't know, about a, six months. And then uh, went on to my bachelor's and just kept going.
1: Okay, so you're, again, you're still a super long shot for the LDO program, you pick it up, um, which is an amazing feat in itself. You're sitting in this English class. It's what an hour. So we're in the same time zone. Um, so you're an hour behind. So it must have been what seven, 715 in the morning. And a plane crashes into the World Trade Center. Obviously, you didn't know that right at that time. When did they tell you something bad was going on?
0: So the guy sitting next to me had a blackberry.
1: You know, okay, the, the yeah, the old school.
0: Blackberry brand? Yeah. Yep, he had a blackberry. He made a fortune on blackberry stuff, by the way. He had a blackberry and he got a text or whatever they called it, SMS. Back in the day, before text was text, but uh, yeah, he got this message, and he's like, "Hey guys, we need to be watching the news." So of course the instructors like, "What's going on?" It's like somebody just uh, crashed into the twin towers. Uh, so of course we turned the news on it. Everybody in the room, there's forty-five, maybe forty-five LDOs and warrants in this room, and everybody's ready to go to war. It was crazy.
1: So, as you're watching this, um, did you guys, what were you guys thinking?
0: We shouldn't be wasting time going to this school. We should be out there doing what we know how to do.
1: But, I mean, did you guys know right away that it was a terrorist attack? Or No.
0: Absolutely not. We, we knew, you know, as, as they released it to the rest of the world, that's when we knew. I wouldn't have any inside tipper,
1: but I mean, did you get, did you guys see the second plane hit? I did not. Okay.
0: I saw the the, like the replay of it.
1: Yeah. But you didn't see live the, no. So yeah. How much longer did you have to stick to that school then before you got back out to the fleet?
0: Uh Uh-huh. That's a loaded question, Tom. I didn't get back out to the fleet. I went to shore to do next.
1: That's true. Well, so we I mean, about outside uh, of o- outside of the classroom. Better way. So of- we had
0: about three more weeks. We graduated. And I went to this. I think you're going to like this. I went to Pacific Missile Range Facility. PMRF. Barking Sands. Kauai, Hawaii.
1: Okay. So were you on the receiving end or the, uh, firing end?
0: Definitely (laughs) receiving.
1: Really? So what did the freshly mended butter bar have to do over at the range?
0: Um, so we had a small, uh, it's called an OMD organized organizational maintenance detachment, or maintenance, uh, department, depending on who you ask and when you ask them, by the way. Uh, And we had three H3s. And what we would do is we'd go out and support the range uh, by picking up the um, torpedoes.
1: Okay. Wait. Please tell me that they were test torpedoes, not live ones?
0: No, they were test (laughs)
1: Okay. Um, so how long were you there for?
0: Well, I terminated Shore Duty almost right away. Okay. <laughs> so I was there a little over two years. It was a great tour. When I look back on it, I wish I had just stayed because uh, it was just a great tour for my family. Being you know, on in Kauai.
1: I mean, that seems and like and it's... From a- there I, went,
0: I went right back to Guam. Um,
1: so this is what 2003 around the time that the, uh, the yeah, I- Iraq
0: was actually beginning in 2004
1: okay so Iraq had already kicked off so as a guy who spent the vast majority of his time in combat uh, helicopter squadrons how would you, were you left feel out
0: my, you left out my Iraq time in 98
1: no we talked about that we did yeah, real briefly. You said you, you went in there and helped with the humanitarian stuff. And no, that was
0: ninety.
1: That I was 94. Said, oh, okay. Let's jump back to that then. So <laughs> we're kind of all over the place, but it's all good. I mean, that's what this whole conversation. So what were you doing in Iraq in 98?
0: Uh, we were part of the bombing
1: that happened in Iraq in 1998. That's right. Desert Fox. I think that's what it was called. I think that's that's what it was called. That's exactly what it was called. Did you guys actually uh, release Ordinance yourselves?
0: No, not as a helicopter. Uh, We did a lot of intel planning with the... I say intel planning. We did a lot of intel mission support. Okay. uh, Before, uh, and then some some logies, some logistics stuff afterwards but no, we weren't dropping bombs or anything. Okay. I mean, our helicopter wasn't the battle group obviously was. Yeah. So,
1: so uh, this is going to sound really weird in, um, but maybe you'll get the perspective of it. Were you guys ever airborne during, um, one of these times when we launched a whole bunch of, to- uh, tomahawks or, uh, launched ordnance from the ships.
0: Uh, no to tomahawks that I know of, and yes to ordnance from a ship.
1: What was that like being above it as it's going off?
0: It's pretty crazy to hear it.
1: Oh, to hear it! I wouldn't even have thought about it.
0: it. You're not really seeing it. I mean, you can see uh, like the concussion—not the concussion, but the uh, the recoil of the guns. Like I was on a DDG. Um, you can see the recoil of the guns, but you're not seeing a projectile. I mean, the DDG, it's shooting a a Volkswagen four miles into the beach.
1: Right, right. No, I just meant, um, I was thinking, I don't know why in my head I had, you were doing this at night where you'd see the big flame pop out the gun. No. That's goofy me. So let's jump back to you being it with, combat squadrons this whole you're basically your whole career so up, up to this date freshly like i said freshly minted butter bar no offense to butter bars but we gotta tease them when we have the opportunity you have to yeah my my uh my second cousin just got commissioned as a fresh butter bar yesterday out of out of college <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she's gonna get a lot of shit for being a butter bar but yep. um how are you feeling about not being being at the range when there's all these guys doing missions into Afghanistan, Iraq's kicking off? Are you wanting to get back in the bird and be you know, in the, in the shit?
0: That was probably my toughest period, you know, going from, and I use this term loosely, uh, but being operational right, uh, and first person to something. To being more of an administrator of that operation, which is what I'd become, you know, I was now a, a, a manager of the flights uh, and stuff like that. But uh, I missed it. I missed it greatly. I turned in my uh, I turned in a letter of resignation uh, about two years after I got commissioned. And said I wanted to go back and be a by then I'd have been a senior chief. I wanted to go back and my enlisted rank and do the same old stuff
1: and I from the history I know that obviously was not accepted.
0: It was not accepted.
1: You are actually not the only person I know. um I have a friend of mine, uh, and I'll keep that information to myself but same type of thing got a commission and realized commission life was not for me and wanted to revert yeah. the navy just and it's funny because i did the research on the navy really does not have a path to do that no they don't they don't demand the power structure for it yeah and it's like wait we gave you an officer rank why would you want to go back to being an enlisted person why would you want yeah, to go back to the the peasants
0: yeah because i liked it
1: <laughs> yeah, because peasants get to shoot people in the face. <laughs> <Yep>.
0: <laughs> no, they have more fun.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely. So, um, you go back to you go back to you said Guam. So, do you get back into the back into the birds, or are you still doing administrative? No, training?
0: I never. I never returned to a flight status after I got commissioned. I tried. I applied for it. Uh, to see if they would let me go as like an observer even, uh, so I could go out on missions. But that's something the Marine Corps does, but the Navy doesn't do. Uh, so that was declined. So I was purely, I was what they call a maintenance material control officer. I was responsible for making sure that our maintenance team, you know, at that time, I think we had 325 people, uh, that they were taking good care of the 20 aircraft we had.
1: Oh, uh, wow.
0: Yeah. So we would deploy, we had 10 detachments at that squadron. So that's two planes per detachment.
1: So do you guys, do you deploy with them? Like when they go out to sea, do you go with them then? Or do you stay in Guam? No,
0: that's something that came later as we transitioned to HSC from HC and HS. So we married those two squadrons up and then you started deploying as a whole squadron. Oh, okay. Which a little bit different because you have fewer airplanes and fewer people. So it was like a super detachment, actually. But they called them squadrons anyway.
1: So so I, I say this kind of jokingly. Did you guys ever get into a combat zone then on your deployments? For where? Uh, for, for any of your future deployments after you picked up, uh, became an officer. Did you ever go into a combat zone where uh, you sent birds we in? To-
0: yeah, we went and did a, I did an air ambulance detachment, naval air ambulance detachment. I don't know if you've heard of that. NAD 2515. That was okay. out of uh, Camp during Kuwait. Um,
1: so the, the uh, reason why I said I referred to this kind of humorously, um, you always see the pit. Do you always see the old maintenance guys from movies when the birds would come back shot up yelling at the pilots? Like, how did you get my bird shot up? Did you go attached to your aircraft?
0: I did. I knew all my aircraft intimately. Uh, You know, if you look at the books every day, uh, you know what's going on. And you're out there walking around, you know, management by walking around. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, so you know what's going on. Uh, But I never gave the pilots a hard time. I think their job was tough enough already. And the same with the crew. I respected that because I'd been there. It was like, hey, you guys just tell me what's wrong with it. We'll worry about how it got that way later, but we're going to fix it. You know, so first, uh, first, first uh, step in solving a problem is identify you got a problem. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I got to ask, did you guys ever lose a bird?
0: Yes, I've lost uh, about a dozen friends uh, to helicopter crashes.
1: Oh wow. Wow. Okay, that one kind of threw me off. Um, what, without going too deep, what, what is that like talking to the rest, to your crews um, after you guys lose someone? Just. It's,
0: it's tough, man. Uh, we had a master chief come in and talk to us. Um, and we lost one while I was an officer as well, but uh, we lost three when I was enlisted, we had a match chief come in, senior air crewman, and talk to us about, uh, this was after the second crash, the third one happened yet, uh, and talk to us about uh, it was okay if we started to second guess what we wanted to get out of our job. You know, kind of like, hey, if, if you, if you want to turn on your wings, Maverick, uh, or Goose, or whatever, you know, whatever that phrase is, um, it's okay but it was definitely, it's tough. I mean, these are people you see every day and then they're not there.
1: That makes sense. I mean, yeah, I universally have heard from aviators that helos, though. Like we said earlier, they, they crash different than aircraft, but when they go down, they go down and there's, you don't have the luxury of ejecting or, or something like that, like the, no. like the, the fixed wing do. So, nope, nope. so after the air ambulance mission, did you feel like you guys were doing what you originally came back in the Navy to do as far as, um, or not originally came back in the Navy, but as a rescue swimmer, did you feel like that mission had come back 100%? <laughs>
0: think that was just an amazing mission. Uh, we were out there saving war fighters, um, giving them a chance at living, which is huge. Air ambulance, uh, its they call it dust off in the army. We were actually embedded with the army uh, as one of their dust off detachments. And just what those uh, guys and gals, because we had, we had female pilots as well, what they were able to do Wow. It was wow. It's like this is awesome. They're saving people's lives.
1: So was this uh, in Afghanistan?
0: public though? I mean, our helicopters were armed to the teeth.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> was this in Afghanistan or Iraq? Iraq. Okay. So um, you probably had a lot of uh, people go either near or to Bilad, the the big meta- the big medical base up there. Been there, done that, know that base pretty intimately, um, not by choice. That being said, how was, you, how was it being separated from Carrie and the family in an actual no-shit war zone at that point in time? Where Somalia, yes, it was a war zone, but it was also a humanitarian mission.
0: Um, it was different. But if you remember, we were talking earlier about the, the communication. Yeah. So I had a phone. I had a desk with a phone on I could call my wife anytime I wanted. Just pick up the phone and call. It was that easy. Anytime I wanted. So, uh, and we had email, I could get pictures. I mean, you've been to the desert, you know, we we fortify bases with all the things that you actually need to keep people alive. Like a gym, some place to go get coffee, all those things that seem kind of superfluous. But when you put them all together, it makes a better warfighter. Like, hey, a little bit of comfort.
1: I, I, I joke. Obviously,
0: be- it's Starbucks, but it's, you know.
1: Yeah. I, I joked before or right actually right after I came back that, you know, I could have stayed in Iraq for another two or three years. Just bring me home uh, once every six months to take me to a Walmart.
0: Yeah. And replace your Crocs.
1: Hold on one second i got the ac kicked on here
0: hey can you hit pause one more time
1: yeah i'm gonna pause it real quick okay we're back again so um we were talking about the air ambulance stuff and how it affected you let's speaking of air ambulances let's get to this point like I said, I met you at the Team Navy Trials. It's an adaptive sports uh, thing for wounded warriors. And we'd already talked about your TBI once, your first TBI. When I met you, you were dealing with some TBI issues while you were still active duty. And by this time, you were a lieutenant commander, which yes. now, now that I know that you're an LDO, I didn't think that... Uh, Lieutenant commander was an option for you guys.
0: Actually, made commander.
1: Well, at the time, though, you were lieutenant commander. I didn't realize that. uh, I thought LDOs were restricted to like 03, 04 at the most. 06. Okay. Okay. So, what got you into the program?
0: Into the
1: and to the Wounded Warrior Program.
0: Adaptive. Uh, <coughs> sorry.
1: Don't choke to death on me.
0: Master Chief Georgia Monson. She got me into the program.
1: <clears throat> was she seen? Was, uh, <coughs> was she what, seen some... Was something in you changing that um, made you concerned about TBI or...
0: Uh, I was going through rehabilitation post-TBI, post-Walter Reed, and met her at rehabilitation at the Polytrauma Star Program in Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, she, she introduced herself and asked me if I was interested in, she asked me a whole bunch of stuff too for you. She could tell us physically fit. She's like, hey, would you have be been interested in adaptive sports? I was like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like something I would like.
1: So real quick, um, I, think we, I think I missed something. So what was it that got you into, what was the TBI? What was the, the root cause of the TBI at the time?
0: So it was compounded TBIs. Oh, okay. And I wound up with a brain disease. Okay. So with so, the final what's that?
1: Oh no, go ahead, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so over the course of my enlisted career I probably had I don't know, 40. 40 TBIs. Forty 40, 40.
1: Zero.
0: Four, zero. Yeah.
1: And during during that time, enlisted jumping out of helicopters and and doing what you were doing, shooting machine guns. Um, we didn't know repetitive blows to the head, and that's probably not the right way to put it for you. Um, repetitive impact caused TBIs, or or did any of this. So no, like the absolutely. so like the first big one we talked about you probably went and did the same thing for each and every one of them. And even on the smaller ones, you probably didn't even realize anything was wrong. I'm, I'll, I'll make that guess.
0: No, you're right. I mean, uh, like the 50 cal, shooting an unsuppressed 50 cal, each instance, and I didn't log these as instances in that 40, but each instance of shooting uh, is considered a TBI because it's unsuppressed. If you're shooting a BMG 50 cal, uh, the Gal 21 is a little bit different story. We we figured it out uh, at some point. But, uh, you know, we've come back from, you know, fire X, whatever. And you'd have just some, an amazing headache. Just amazing headache. And, you know, your vision would be a little bit off. Everything about you would be a little bit off but just kind of shook it off. Everybody else was feeling the same way and just kind of shook it off. Everybody's John Wayne.
1: And, and now in 2000, what year was it? 2015, 2016. Was there, had the attitudes changed?
0: I think so. Uh, they brought in some of the pilots I flew with back when I was enlisted. And interviewed them, which was really cool for them to do that. Um, and talked about some of the different uh, rescue scenarios that uh, we'd executed. Uh, high altitude, I did a just shy twelve thousand foot rescue. Um, uh, rough seas, pulled thirteen people out of the water uh, in twenty five foot seas. So just stuff like that. They interviewed him and talked to him about the different uh, environments I've been in. They're like, hey, this guy's got
1: innumerable
0: TVIs. And we weren't tracking those.
1: So what's the policy now uh, for guys who are in your situation? Not, um, Not retired, but I mean, like active duty, guys jumping out of helicopters, Sitting on door you know, I, don't,
0: I don't think a lot's changed. And so I reach out to that community. I've talked to them. I've talked to the leadership in the community. When I say leadership, the enlisted leadership, because that's that's where the problem lies. You know, that's what the damage gets done to our our troops. Um, pilots have their own set of problems, but uh, I think they're still fighting that fight, Tommy.
1: Do you, think, uh, do you think maybe there can be a change that maybe somebody in policy, someone over at NPC or somewhere Bupers will take note? I mean, like you said, let's face it, when I met you, you were still active duty. You were still fit as fuck. Um, yes, you had the TBI issues, but you, you said you retired 32 years and you probably could have done the 40 if it was up to you the loss of the knowledge base of yourself and anyone who e6 and below who's getting out because they're having discipline problems because of the mental changes that happen with tbis seems like there's a big there's a big disconnect the navy's wasting a lot of manpower and a lot of effort to not have this thing fixed
0: yeah i would say uh, I'm a little disappointed, and I call it my Navy because I served so long. I'm a little disappointed in my Navy and the way we're addressing it. Uh, there's been a lot of changes in the Navy from the time I joined to the time I got out until current day. Uh, and we're behind. We're We're ahead in a whole bunch of ways. But when it comes to dealing with things that affect sailors... We're still missing the boat. We're still years behind what's going on right now. Right. It takes us that long to catch up.
1: So when I met you in 2018, you were going through some stuff, but um, did you feel like you were seeing a light at the end of the tunnel at that point in time that you maybe had, overcome some of the TBI or were you, or do you still think that, um, there's a long path ahead for you?
0: Um, back then I was hopeful. That's the right word. I was hopeful that, uh, I was going to meet the right doc. They were going to do some procedure or prescribe me some kind of medication that would help me, you know, regain focus and memory, concentration, some of the things I know that are all too familiar to you as well, brother. And uh, that never happened, but I was hopeful. Uh, and it was probably later that year after Warrior Games that I realized uh, the light at the end of the tunnel had been extinguished. I was going home.
1: So, they get, this is the, the one area where I got a little confused. They promoted you to commander. So, oh 05. Did they think that you were going to? Did they? I don't want to say that you can predict how the Navy was thinking, but was that a, an indication of a retirement gift or was that a? We have faith in no, you. No,
0: that, uh, that was based on there wasn't enough data at the time to say I was going home. Uh, I put on commander before that decision came out. I, I made it. 18 months prior to putting it on. So, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar how that works for us. You find it's out that long it of a... 18, yeah, 18 months later, you get to pin it on. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I had made it to, and penned it on before the med board came back and said, Hey,
1: you're not fit for <laughs> So, how bittersweet was the end? For you,
0: it wasn't very sweet,
1: dude. How, okay, so let me rephrase that because I know our mutual friend Jules, who's also been on the podcast. So I feel like I can bring his name up myself. The way commands turn on you on the enlisted side, um, and
0: same same happens on the officer side.
1: Complete disrespect yeah, to the tool. people that were my my leadership, but fuck them. They gave no shits once they realized that you were on the way out the door. My quote unquote triad guys could care less. Um, you're saying it was the same way for the, in the officer's community. Was
0: that just. So I had a CEO. Well, I had a CEO that was very engaged and very supportive. Um, I was at a pretty, pretty big command, um, responsible for 37 commands underneath us. we responsible for all the naval aviation training uh, across the enterprise. So it was a pretty big command, a pretty sharp captain he'd been in. Uh, he was an LDO that, that uh, changed designators and was trying to put on Admiral, I think. Uh, he had 38 years in him and he really understood my career and what I'd gone through and what I was trying to accomplish. And he supported me. But then he had to retire. And the next guy, I never heard from him. Ever. I didn't get a thank you. I didn't get an end of tour award. I didn't get anything. Not a retirement letter. Nothing. Damn. 32 years.
1: That's just a kick in the face. Yeah. Yeah. So as you were leaving, um, did you actually get medically retired or did they just have you retire, retire?
0: Uh, I refused to retire. So they had to medically retire me.
1: Okay. Okay. So as you're going out, you get, and the reason why I asked that is because when you go to the med board process uh, versus the retirement process, they do the VA rating and all of that for you. So you get your VA rating. How was your, how was your, oh, what the hell is the word? Comp and pension appointments, the appointments that they send you to for the VA as you're going to the med board, how would the VA, understand it. but did they, did they, did they do any better in trying to figure out what was wrong with you or was it just the same typical stuff that's always happened?
0: Uh, it was I, I would go with it's the same typical stuff that's always happened.
1: Okay. So when you finally retire, um, which was what 2019?
0: 19.
1: Um did you stay in the military healthcare system or did you start to feel like there there was other other ways that you needed to start looking?
0: Uh initially we we tried to stay within uh, for continuity of care. It's something I know that's near and dear to you when it comes to taking care of a patient Um, we wanted the continuity of care as things have progressed along the way uh, my wife who's my biggest advocate has really been pushing that i go with civilian doctors um, so i can get that continuity of care and i can get the level of expertise that i need instead of just whoever they stuffed into a job
1: yeah yeah, I I I know that uh, the pri- the primary cares here are all interns, so two years and they're gone. Um, in your case, did you try the VA at all once you got retired? Or yeah, how were they? I did.
0: In fact, I'm still in the VA. I have a VA appointment coming up. As a matter of fact, uh, when they medically retired me, they made me TDRL, so I'm not permanently retired
1: yet. They made you TDRL? Yes. You should make them find you fit and reinstate your commission.
0: (laughs) So I told them that already.
1: (laughs) Uh, Why would they? That makes no sense that they would make you TDRL.
0: It doesn't make any sense. I have a TDRL appointment here in like a week. Uh, That's
1: probably the one where they'll say, okay, we're going to make you permanent. But it's ridiculous. It, it it's gets, a waste of
0: money.
1: Yeah, it, it's a complete and utter waste of time, especially with your condition. Um, and if you're not getting any better, it, they knew this going in. But without just sitting here bashing a Navy, because I too save my Navy. I still do. I every single year, I'm still out there with the new Chiefs, doing yep, what we it. do. Yeah, own it. I was singing anchors away at the end of January at one o'clock in the morning with all the new chiefs in front of the corpsman barracks, which I'm surprised Chris didn't get relief for, but we did that. (laughs) Um, All of that being said, I love the Navy. I know you do too. I do. What would you tell the Navy if you could get up in front of the surgeon general and the CNO?
0: I would tell them to commission a committee Of TBI survivors, like yourself, myself, that would be their direct representation when it comes to talking about TBIs and the effects and impacts it has on our sailors today. Yeah, somebody who can get down in the deck plate and and give them an honest answer.
1: See, I feel like I'm in very charted territory to to a certain extent. Um, Traumatic TBIs being as a, as a VA optometrist once told me, in his opinion, there were two different types of TBIs. He was involved in a 60 mile an hour um, automobile accident and he compared my TBI to his, he's like, I had a low velocity TBI, which means there was bleeding on the brain. There was, it was a very obvious concussion. He's like, you had a high velocity TBI due to the bomb and it, when, they, when you die, they'll probably cut your brain open and see micro tearing all throughout the neurons. But it's not something that with the technology we currently have can be imaged. You now, oh, fall, cannot. You now fall into a weird third category, which is cumulative TBIs. All of us, that, that optometrist, yourself, myself, had at least two or three, if not like you said, 40 TBIs before the big thing hit. You are closer to like an NFL player type TBI. I've been
0: diagnosed with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy.
1: Okay. So you did get the CTE diagnosis where it's just repetitive blows to the brain. your, Your brain bounces around in your brain housing group and gets damaged. Sometimes it's enough to be seen on imagery. Sometimes it's not, but it all affects the wiring. I mean, let's face it. The brain is an amazing thing but it is a sensitive electrical bitch that can go haywire really that easy. we know
0: very little well about. Yes. And we know very little well. about.
1: Exactly. So let's finish this up with a brief recap of something that happened last year. Um, I know you weren't able to come out to the team thing that happened in January, but immediately after January, well, 2020 something weird happened. The The world exploded with this little tiny virus thingy. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> how did COVID affect you guys? And I mean, obviously you're living in Florida, so it's a whole different world than even Texas, but how did COVID affect you guys?
0: Um, it isolated me even more than I already am. I mean, uh, as you know, PTSD, people who have PTSD don't usually talk about PTSD, um, but they take measures to avoid certain things. So I'd already taken some isolation measures, but uh, COVID really added to the isolation and it made it pretty tough uh, for me and my service dog, uh, not to mention Carrie, who had to put up with me all the time uh, because I wasn't able to get out with my dog and interact with uh, the people that I actually cared about, like Jules right so it's pretty tough man
1: do you think uh your care suffered because of covid and all the different
0: absolutely they canceled all my appointments that's why i said i would uh we were migrating towards uh, civilian care the va canceled all my appointments
1: so i was recently in a car accident um and I, I do not think I got a concussion, but what I will say is a lot of my um, TBI symptoms have come back with a vengeance.
0: I'd say you got a concussion.
1: (laughs) I, I think it was just an awakening. That being said, I was fortunate enough to not have it. It was after the, the reopening here, but I could not imagine going through that with all the shutdown that we had. Um, And some of the restrictions that we're seeing, as far as like my, some, one of my doctors, I screwed up my Achilles. I had an appointment the week after I came back from a sailing thing and nope, can't see you for two weeks. You have, you can't have anyone to your home. It's gotten a little bit over the top and I think it really does affect us all negatively. I'm, since we were here and we took that brief break, I had a phone call. And they want to do a tele, a tele um, what is it? Telehealth. Telehealth for an initial appointment for TBI type symptoms. You and I both know that doesn't work. You can't do a TBI screening remotely. You have to interact with the patient. I remember some of the most basic tests, which was like stand with your eyes closed and have your hands out. And how often do you? You can't do that through uh, telemedicine. So, what? What do you think is going to happen to all the people who have been going through what you've been going through, who haven't been able to get the care, including yourself? Do you think in the long run, we're going to have a some really bad outcomes because of that?
0: I think there's going to be a bow wave of folks that once the care comes back online, uh, even as limited as it, it is normally, I think there'll be a bow wave of people who are going to need some Significant time in front of the doc, uh, so the doc can say, "Hey, this is some help we can get you," or maybe a little medication. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of medication, but I'm doing better today because of medication, so I'm, I'm a believer.
1: So, do you, what about alternatives? Have you looked into alternative medications, alternative practices?
0: We have. I say we, my wife and I. I mean. All my kids are in the military, so doing um, like medicinal marijuana, which you know, almost every doctor I have has recommended that in the recent months. Uh, neurologist, uh, even my optometrist, my neuro optometrist. Uh, the problem with that is, if I go visit my kids and they live on base,
1: yeah, I
0: can't take my medicinal marijuana with me.
1: No, no. So but I, was no
0: thinking, real that.
1: I was actually thinking more of uh, not necessarily the marijuana, but some of the mindfulness practices, some of the uh, naturopathic doctors, uh, things like that. I, I yeah, feel like I
0: practice mindfulness. I have an app for mindfulness uh, and I try and do a little bit of Zen.
1: Okay. Does it help for you? It's
0: short term, but yes.
1: I I I'm really trying to move away from the standard medical model now. I, I just feel like that there's better alternatives than going to see a neurologist who's going to do what neurologists do. Tell you I don't see any bleeding on the brain. Yes, you have some cognitive deficiencies. So go see a psychiatrist or a psychologist and let them do that. And oh yeah, by the way, if you have headaches, here's some Zomig. Um, our medical care not and it's not just the military it's it's civilian too is very formulaic and I, you've probably experienced that more than i have and i don't know how many times you've told your tbi story but it also gets really tiring repeating yourself 30 or 40 times
0: it does uh you know the just recently i had a, a tbi team want to like reinvent the wheel with me i'm not sure why when I went to Walter Reed and I was seen by arguably one of the best in the world. And that's, that's where they started the TBI program at. And I was inpatient at Walter Reed. Um, and these local folks that I call them want to do this TBI, whatever, I don't know. But, uh, Harry's like, hell no, we're not going to start over with you guys. We're beyond diagnosis. <laughs> There's no point in seeing you.
1: Yeah. And to end on a happier note, are you happy? <laughs> are you, um, how are you feeling for the future?
0: I'm optimistic. My wife has made some pretty good plans for us. Uh, we're going to get out and do some traveling while I can still remember things. Uh, I want to see uh, Mount Rushmore. I want to go spend some time in the uh, Joshua Tree. Little forest out there. Maybe stay the night in Galveston, Texas, on the beach. Got a few things on my list I want to do.
1: Nice. Well, I hope you uh, make a road trip out here to Texas at least. Um, like I said, I got About some people. The- I got some people that uh, I want to hook you up with. Uh, you know one of them very well, which may or may not be like Oil and Water, but uh, the organization that they work with does. Good things. And I think they would probably learn some stuff from you. But Rob, thank you for coming on. Um, this has been fun because it's two TBI people trying to talk to each other. And I think we did pretty well.
0: It's been pretty awesome, dude. It's gone by quick.
1: Yes. And um we've been minus the two the three little breaks. We've been going for about two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna end the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com. On Instagram, the Modern Ronin, On Twitter, at tommychase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.